let's be real for a second. If you can just get 5% of the people who voted for Donald Trump to somehow, for some reason, feel like it was a bad decision and that we're betraying our humanity when we make people feel degraded and un-American in their own society. If you can get 5% of them, the guy's done. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. It is very tempting to think that populists will eventually run the course because they're not very good at governing, because they betray their promises to their base, because they politicize things so much that people just get sick of having to see their face on television each and every single day. And there's some evidence of that happening. There's some evidence of Americans getting sick of Donald Trump. But when you look around the world, the evidence is that this is not what happens most of the time. Take Italy. In 2011, Silvio Berlusconi, after two decades of dominating Italian politics, was deeply unpopular. When rumors started to spread that he might be about to resign, thousands of Romans came out in front of a presidential palace to celebrate. A hastily assembled amateur orchestra started to play Handel's Hallelujah. Well, seven years later, Berlusconi is the kingmaker of Italian politics once again. And there are two other populist movements, the League and the Five Star movement that have actually become even more powerful, even more influential. And you can see similar developments in many other countries from Peru to Argentina. Populism has really long staying power. And so I just want to remind everyone of a thing that was my hypothesis from the start in this podcast, which is that we need to fight for our values in this political moment over the next three or four years as it is acutely in danger. But we also have to think about how we can overcome some of them over the next decades, over the next 40 years in a more sustainable way. But now it's my real pleasure to introduce the second half of my conversation with Anand. You've heard him talk really interestingly on the last episode about the role that the rich play in our society, thinking that they create real change, but often peddling fake change. Well, I got to tell you, I think the second half of the conversation was even more interesting. It's a really genuine, heartfelt attempt to think about how Americans across the political and cultural divide can speak to each other, can understand each other better, how, in a nutshell, we together can create the America we really desire. I hope you'll enjoy the conversation. This is a great transition to the second set of things that I wanted to talk about. You know, how do you accept and push and welcome change that actually costs you yourself something. And one way of talking about that is the role of you know, rich people in our society. Another way of talking about that is the big cultural war we have going on in our society at the moment. And you wrote a really interesting piece recently in which you argue that both sides of the political spectrum in certain ways now just live off of outrage. And we thrive on outrage because we hate the people on the other end of a political divide. We thrive on outrage because it makes us feel good about ourselves, because it shows, you know, our commitment to, to the values that, that our side embraces. It's a way of policing people um, who, who have somehow misstepped and so on. And you have some really interesting suggestions about you know, how we might be able to to be self-critical about that for, for every person, no matter where you stand on the political spectrum, to actually push themselves into seeing the causes of the other side's outrage better and being more careful in when they celebrate their own outrage. So talk us through that a little bit. Yeah, I, I tried to call for um, an outrage armistice because in great measure, I, mean, I think the first part of our conversation in many ways was about one set of causes of this age of anger that we're living in. And I think, you know, the kind of condescensions and neglect of rich people are part of that story. But another very important, if not dominant part of that story in the United States and with echoes around the world is the massive, massive culture war, as you called it, that is coming with 
the transition of a country that's essentially been for 400 years run by white men to a country that is seeing women empowered and passing into, you know, over time to a minority majority. And by the way, this comes at a time when, you know, I think this is often forgotten in America, the decentering of the white man is actually a global phenomenon. Hmm. If you think about it, not to get too grandiose about it, but if you, you know, if you look at Europe on a map, it's pretty small. Right, right. And I think you could argue, and certainly I felt this when I was a foreign correspondent in India, that part of the story we were covering, I went to India, when I was in India, when I went to China, was that this really small part of the earth towards the top um, had basically been the protagonist of a great deal of history, violence, power, and prestige and had mm. kind of owned the story of the world for the last 500 years. Mm. Doesn't mean there weren't other people with good stories to tell or worthy of consideration. You know, you had Britain controlling 25% of the surface area of the world at a certain point in time, and that's just one country out of many that were colonizing. And so something I think, you know, that I see as a foreign correspondent returned to America and someone of Indian parents born in Cleveland, Ohio, home of the Cleveland Indians, You've told me that your your dad used to joke that uh, your family were the original Cleveland. We were the original Cleveland Indians, yeah. Although, as we say, you know, dot not feather was the joke at the time. Seems you know increasingly inappropriate. Thankfully, I feel there's some old Robin Williams movie where that joke is made. Yeah, all things traced to old Robin Williams movies, and so I think this transition that we're in in America that is giving people so much heartache, this transition to a country in which women and people of color are equal and have a voice and frankly make up a majority, is actually part of this larger global phenomenon of the decentering of white guys owning the currency of history for the last 500 years. And it's connected to the stories of the ascendancy of India and China and frankly the ascendancy of many economies and innovative potential in Africa. Latin America. And so when I think about what I observe in this society, the United States, is an enormous amount of anxiety on the part of those who are experiencing those changes as a headwind. Now, of course, I am part of the America that is experiencing those same changes for the most part as a tailwind. And I think one of the ways I think about the moment we're in that led me to write this armistice piece is it's very easy, and I sometimes get in this trap as much as anybody, to just get in your side and kind of get cozy on the sofa with your side under the blanket and like we're all, you know, partisans of the kind of new America that is coming and all these people are this kind of reactionary force that doesn't want this to come. But I sometimes try to go a little deeper and think about the idea that as much as I want this new America to come, I do understand and have to understand as an obligation of my citizenship how hard it must be to lose the certainties of the era that is rightfully dying. You know, I quote Toni Morrison in the piece you referenced, and, you know, she has one of her characters say, and I'm maybe missing a word here, but what difference do it make if the thing you're scared of is real or not? Uh, so what I try to do in this piece is think about, you know, I talked about the kind of the two poles of America, woke America on the left that wants this new America to come as fast as possible and great America that thinks that our best days are behind us and frankly that wants, you know, through the nostalgia and the nationalism of Donald Trump to reclaim it. And what I tried to think about is what could each do to understand what the other is telling it beneath what it is simply saying. And anybody who's ever had therapy or gone to a couple's counselor or <laughs> dealt with any kind of actual human being where they had to be committed in the relationship and go a level deeper, understands that often the thing people are screaming at you is not the entirety of what you need to understand. Right. So if we actually treated each other like kind of a committed couple, like we're going to get through this. And by the way, we really have to get through this as a country in a way that couples really have the option of divorce. So walk me through the couple's counseling version of each side of it. So if I'm the therapist. So, right. So if you're I'm the gonna... therapist and you're, and you're looking, you know, for people who, you know, perhaps on, on the side of great America or perhaps are simply exasperated by some of the, the loudest voices on the side of, say, woke America, what is it that, you know, they should hear 
instead of rolling the eyes or instead of saying, okay, this is just posturing or this is, you know, quote unquote snowflakes or SJWs or whatever, what is it that they should actually hear in those voices and stop themselves and not roll their eyes, not mute a Twitter account, but actually perceive that that is important for them to hear. Yeah. And then we'll do the same By the way, I'm sitting here in the studio thinking, you know, I've been thinking about it would be fun to do a podcast where I, I actually do this couples counseling for these people on different sides of That'd this be fascinating, country. yeah. And so if I was doing that in this room right now, and I heard, let's say I heard from each of these kind of the woke America person, the great America person, these stories that I kind of were telling you before, I think here's what I would then intervene after listening and say, here's what I want you to see in what the other side just said. I think I would look at the Trump voter, the partisan of great America, and say, you don't like the fact that the person from woke America is talking about white privilege and male privilege. You find this very off-putting. You think they're obsessed with race and gender. You don't like what a big deal they make about transgender bathrooms. There's so few transgender people. Why making such a big deal about these bathrooms? You don't like the fact that they don't seem committed to free speech because they're kicking these professors out of campus and it seems totally illiberal and out of step with American values. Okay, let's go deeper. What are they telling you beneath that? And what I think they are telling you is that the free country that you think you live in, the country of the American dream that you think you live in are defending, has actually never been for them what it has been for you. That their experience of the world is often that the world is unwelcoming, that the rooms they walk in would rather not have them there, that the tables they're at would rather ignore them, that every room they enter feels like a fortress they have to penetrate. And so what I would say to the person from Great America is the person complaining about the lecture or the transgender bathroom or white privilege, as much as you deplore their complaints, they are giving you an opportunity. They're actually pointing out ways in which your vision of America can become even truer. Hmm. They're like, uh, you know, those people who professionally find glitches in software and help you make those, you know, hmm. those white, white hat hackers, right, that software companies hire to hack the software, not to do evil, but to help you but make the software them, yeah. better. And it, I think if people in great America thought about the complaints on the left as kind of white hat hackers, people who love this country, they're trying to make it better, and they're telling you beneath their protest, there's patriotism. So couples therapy goes both ways, right? I mean, so one thing we need to do is then to look at sort of what great America is trying to tell us that we may not be listening to, right? But another thing is that in successful couples therapy, and actually I've, I've never been, I probably should have gone at various points in my life, is that you need to hear what the other person is saying, but they also ideally learn to express what they're saying in a way that is then more likely to be heard. Yes. Right. So I thought we'd I save think, that for our second session, Yasha. No, no, we're, we're doing everything <laughs> today. We're going to go over length of this podcast. Sorry, guys, but we have a lot to talk about here. So if that's what we're trying to express, and one of the reasons why people who aren't members of Woke America have trouble hearing that is, I think, for two reasons, right? One is that they don't feel like there is that commitment to American values, that actually a lot of Woke America is precisely not clamoring for inclusion under equal terms, under principles like freedom of speech, but actually rejecting freedom of speech because they're saying freedom of speech has always been unequally distributed. Some people have through all kinds of mechanisms, some of which actually resonate with the first half of our conversation, been excluded from having truly equal speech. And rather than saying we need to fix those things in order to make the opportunity for free speech truly equal and to allow people of all kinds of different backgrounds and races and genders and so on to be heard in an equal way, this actually just shows that the ideal that you're talking about is corrupt. And so let's get rid of it. So I think that's one reason why some people are resistant to hearing the message. And the other thing is something that, you know, to be totally frank, I sometimes feel, which is that, you know, I'm a, thankfully at the moment, pretty successful guy. I really don't have any complaints in the world. It was that Aspen trip. It was that Aspen trip that really made me. But, you know, when I go on Facebook now, or I go on Twitter, every time that I go on, there is a sort of just sneering reference to... Oh, middle-aged white men. 
now you know I just turned 35, so I suppose officially I am now middle age. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's really the middle age part that's bothering you. It's the middle age part <laughs> that really hurts. But the second reason may be that there is an amount of sort of ad hominem attack that can feel a little needless, right? Which I can take because you know what? My life's going pretty well right now. But if I was frustrated, if I felt like the world isn't seeing my talents, what they are, I don't get to do what I want to do. You know, my wife just left me. I have a shitty job and I hate my boss. And then I go and see something like that. I think I'd be pretty mad, right? So what would you say are the things that people need to become better at hearing what Woke America is trying to say? What do you think Woke America should change yeah, so let's, in order let's to be turn more around the, Turn around the couples counseling. And I think you're absolutely right that it goes both ways. And by the way, this does, does me no favors in my circles. I mean, my circles are Woke America circles. And frankly, people are often uncomfortable with any kind of criticism being directed at Woke America because there is this sense of this is the inevitable future and people need to get with the program. And I, I actually don't think that's right. So if I were now speaking in our podcast, Couples Counseling, to someone from Woke America, someone, frankly, more of my milieu, I would say when people on the right are saying things that are offensive or ignorant, that are angry, that frankly diminish your humanity and question the right of people like you to exist slash be in the country slash do what you do, there's no need to excuse any of that. I mean, I would condemn all of that. But if that's the end of your analysis, you're not doing your full job as a citizen. Simply because letting that be is not a great strategy for the kind of country that's going to be habitable for you. And what I would urge those in Woke America to hear is the fear and pain behind some of those kinds of thoughts. We live in this sometimes very facile culture where saying, understand the fear behind something is taken to mean excuse it or forgive it. But I'm not saying that. I'm saying be able to oppose, resist as forcefully as you need to, stand up for your right to... I mean, I'm asked from time to time, you know, go back to your country or where are you from, you know? And I fight it with every ounce of ferocity that I'm entitled to if I want to fight it. Or if I want to leave it for another day, I do that. However, understand where it's coming from. Understand that there are people who were born into a country where their social world was 96% white and men ran everything and never frankly got a memo about a new world that was coming. Maybe didn't go to the kind of schools that socialized them for the new world. And frankly, feel lost, feel bereft. And the condition of having that kind of fear and pain is often being unable to say that you have fear and pain. So you said two things in one sentence, which I think are slightly different from each other, right? I mean, if somebody says, go back to your country, you know, that is obviously an aggressive mm -hmm. statement that betrays a hostile attitude. And, mm -hmm. you know, there may be people who are heroic and saintly enough to respond to that with equanimity and involve a person in a conversation and convert them. But, but that, I think, is a lot to ask. Yes, yeah. um, I, and, I, and I don't necessarily recommend that. The, the question where you're from, I think, is more complicated yes. because it obviously does betray a bottom line assumption that if you're brown or uh, I guess you, you would have the assumption less with African-Americans for obvious historic reasons. But, you know, if you're brown or East Asian looking, then you can't really be American. And I absolutely understand why people are upset by that. But it's more complicated, it has a more complicated yes. valence because it's not obvious that the attitude is hostile, right? It may be Precisely. ignorance, not in the sense of... Uh, that is now often used, you're ignorant, has become in certain ways a synonym for, you know, you have bad intentions, you're a bad person, but it may be genuinely ignorant, right? Maybe somebody who's unthinking. So how would you and I think recommend what, that's perfect. To, to members of Woke America to respond to that? I think one way to actually totally understand what I'm suggesting is that many in Woke America, I think, are tempted to treat those two things as the same. Go back to your country, exclamation mark, versus where are you from, question mark. And my attempt to try to be a neutral couples therapist on that is to say, I think both questions, as you say, are deeply problematic. The question and the exclamation, they're both deeply problematic. They both betray the idea that Americanness is whiteness and what whiteness is Americanness and a little bit of pigmentation is equated with a presumption of not belonging. Both are deeply problematic. But I think what happens in woke America is the exclamation to go back to your country is sometimes treated as the same as a flawed, misassumed, 
unfortunate question, like where are you from to a person of color? I don't want to get into the business of saying anybody's the obligation to do anything, but I think there's an opportunity, a political opportunity, frankly, out of the self-interest of people who want to live in the new America that is coming, to as often as possible make a move in that second situation, to distinguish it from the first situation and say, hey, I just want to be clear, I'm as American as you. Um, my family is from India, X, Y, Z. And that can take a lot of forms. If you don't feel safe doing it you know, on the street corner, don't do it. But I think sometimes there's a preciousness to the culture of woke America that wants to kind of document and complain about every episode like that, that doesn't understand that those people who are more likely to ask that question than offer that exclamation probably outnumber the people who are going to spew that exclamation and are to some degree convertible, can be brought into mm. coalition with you if you assemble the right set of issues. And I think sometimes there's a political fatalism in woke America about those people that I think is deeply self-defeating. Resistance is one kind of safety, and I think right now, given what we're under, it's a very important, immediate kind of safety. But I think the more durable peace that people in woke America will feel is electoral. Yeah. Let's be real for a second. If you can just get 5% of the people who voted for Donald Trump to somehow, for some reason, feel like it was a bad decision and that we're betraying our humanity when we make people feel degraded and un-American in their own society, if you can get 5% of them, the guy's done. This is, by the way, something that I haven't quite wrapped my head around, but that I'm generally confused by in members of, of what I suppose we could call Welcome America, you know, whether they're slightly more politically moderate or slightly further on the left, which is the assumption that, and this is not a conversation about the causes of populism, but I think listeners of this podcast know that I think the causes are both economic and cultural in certain ways. But there are certain people who say, no, it's just about racism. It's just about the fears that what you would call great America has of cultural change and the rise of minorities and so on. And therefore, what we need to do is to really emphasize identity issues all the way down because that's what it's really about. Now, normatively, I get that, right? I mean, it's a logical train of thought. But when you think about creating the country that you want to live in and when you think electorally, that seems sort of weird, right? Because, because actually, if you thought that the causes of populism are a little bit more complicated and that you can also appeal to people's economic sense or, you know, yes, they have certain cultural fears, but they really can be addressed by being in conversation with them, then you have a way forward, right? If you think that in the end, the causes of a Trump phenomenon is just that what you call Great America is racist and they've always been racist and they're always going to be racist, so let's fight for our view of this. Well, then the best case scenario... The very best case scenario is that you somehow cobble together a majority that's just big enough to win every election, but with half of the country hating you and one of the two big political parties in the country intent on destroying the system. And that's still a terrible vision of where we're going to get as a country. It, it's such a good point. And I personally, with the kind of line I take on this, feel very frustrated in the preponderance of these kind of single explanation stories. I think the idea that Trumpism and populism around the world was solely caused by economic anxiety and inequality is false. I think the idea that it is solely caused by Americans' long and unredeemed history of racism is also false for the reason you have pointed out very well, which is the same phenomenon is occurring in many countries that do not have America's history of racism. You know, you are a German Jew, by origin. I don't think there's a sensible person who understands what happened there uh, in the last century who would say it was not a, you know, fundamentally, foundationally, and catastrophically about racism. However, had the economic history of the previous 10 years been very different, I think we could also agree that the odds that that went down the way it did would probably have drastically changed. Right. I believe that, what I just said about Germany, for America. And I don't think that is to deny the, the, the racism of the Nazis or the importance of economics in shaping what people do. It is a really obvious point that I feel no one is willing to make anymore, which is that it is the interaction of people feeling 
left out, shut out, ignored by an economy that doesn't work for them, and feeling a cultural shift that has no place for them. If you take all the people who feel, as I talked about before, the new America, the minority America arriving as a headwind, if you take mm -hmm. all those people and you put them on a half a million dollar a year dole, I have a suspicion. I'm not saying you're going to get rid of all the racists, but I, I have a suspicion that some of the anger would go away. Right, right. Or even better, half a million dollar job. And likewise, if you were to take, you know, people suffering from inequality and give them a lot more money, you'd still have mm. some unredeemed racists in right, there. Right. But I think the story of what happened in 2016 is the interaction of economic anxiety and race. And the idea is you don't ever want both those things to be true. You don't want to have deep, unresolved racial conflict and racism in your society and to give people so little opportunity that they're fighting for scraps and willing to step on anybody to feel better about themselves. So we're on the same page about the analysis. What implications do you think that has, going back to a couple's therapy sort of mode, for members of woke America, right? It has you a huge implication. you want to create a society that you want to be a part of, that you want to live in, not just one where you cobble together the majority that keeps yes. great America at bay. To me, it has an extremely ambitious, hopeful message for woke America, which if you think this was entirely racism, then your best shot, as you said very well, is to cobble together a coalition of the anti-racist, which at this moment, is going to be a nail-biter every time, may get better for you over time. I think that's selling woke America short. I think woke America, at its best, believes in dignity and decency for all human beings. And if it was willing to think about a movement centered on persuasion, as the abolition movement in the 19th century was, I think it would understand that you have to fight racism and be an anti-racist movement that is also trying to poach, let's just speak about it in ruthless political terms, poach a certain fraction of people who may have some racist feelings or tendencies, but are also discombobulated by an economy that sucks jobs to China and outsources their credit card company to India and has crappy schools for their children. And that you may be able, in a, just a totally pragmatic way, to get 5 or 10% of them to defect every cycle yep, and yep. come to you because you take on an issue like ours. Right? When I travel this country, you want to find an issue that unites everyone everywhere that no one talks about in politics? People's hours. Hmm. Every worker is irritated yep. by how few hours they get, by how unpredictable their hours are, by how they never know how much their paychecks are. That's just, I'm just giving you an example of an yep, issue yep. that if you got out there and say, I'm the hours candidate, hmm. I'm going to abolish this practice of you can't hire people 28 hours so they don't get health care, right? I'm the hours person. Yeah. I'm just telling you as someone who spent a lot of time out in the country, I think invite a lot of people who kind of don't like black people too much and wish there weren't that many immigrants to be like, yeah, but I really want my hours fixed. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm in. And that actually is part of how Barack Obama managed to um, assemble his coalition and managed to get a lot of the people who eight years later voted for Donald Trump. To you know, I, I had the opportunity to speak at, his, at the first summit that he held after his presidency in Chicago in October. And I had the experience of understanding like, you know, why some people are president and you're, and you're not. So I give this talk... <laughs> Talking about I was just going to say that it sounds like you have your agenda for your political run. Right, but, uh, uh, the, the hours candidate, right. Yeah. And, you know, so I gave my talk. And then, of course, I had the experience of, like, listening to Barack Obama summarize my talk an hour later, like, much more eloquently <laughs> than I ever did. And I just, I, like, understood our different fortunes in life and, you know, why he was the president. And, you know, um, I work from my home. He said, you know, the real president works from his home. Yeah, he now does. <laughs> Real well, I mean, it was oh, right, right, when you're in, in the White House. In you the do. White House, yeah. I'm trying to forget about the White House. He said, you know, real change begins with persuasion. And I think that's just the heart of it. Mm. And I think there's a tendency in woke America to think about what I'm talking about as selling out or kind of not fighting hard enough to yeah, defend yeah. and resist. I just want to be clear. I am the first person on every social media platform to be told to go back to my country and hated and receive threats of all kinds. I... I'm pretty anti-racist because I'm the object of a lot of racism. But I do not think swatting it back is a 
total strategy. I think trying to persuade some of the people who may still be persuadable, and I think there's actually a lot of them, gives me a better shot of living in the country I want to live in. Well, one of the deep things that I think is going wrong in this conversation is that you have people... Hopefully not in our conversation. Not in our conversation, no. I mean, our conversation is a model for the kind of way that we as a society should be thinking about those things. I hope it doesn't sound too presumptuous, but I think we're we're generally grappling with something, I think, in good faith. And despite political differences between us, I think, actually trying to understand that. No, I think one of the things that's going wrong in the wider conversation is that you have people who are saying, we're under attack and we're going to call things out and we're going to associate people who we think are not in our political line. And I do think that perhaps sometimes that involves tactical mistakes about how you build the kind of country you want. And perhaps sometimes it even involves dismissing principles that I still think hold part of a key to how to build that society. Now, I think in response to that, you often get, oh, how dare you question this principle that is sacred to me, or look at how silly you're being, right? And in a way, you know, I think each side of the conversation has something important, holds a part of a key to a better future. But if you've outlined some of the things that perhaps woke America can do wrong on, on occasion, I think the answer to the parts of woke America, which I personally also sometimes don't agree, that I think goes really wrong, is not to start with, obviously, there are real attacks going on against all kinds of minority groups at the moment. And there's no footnote and there's no limitation to the ways in which we need to defend those groups, right? And that has, to, that has to come first, and that always has to be emphasized precisely to make there, members there of Work America feel safe. With it. So now, let me add one to that. I, the next thing I think is then to say, let's have a conversation about what this society would actually look like. Let's have a conversation together about how we create this society. And you know what? We, we might have differences about that. I think freedom of speech should continue. I don't mean you and I, but but certain members of Work America, I think freedom of speech needs to continue to be the basis of how we accomplish that society. So let's have a conversation about how to make you feel safe within that, right? I think there are two things, actually. I think you're right on. I think the two things I would say as reassurance to Woke America, to my fellow residents of Brooklyn, New York, which is, number one, protect yourself and defend yourself at all costs. Resist that which despises your right to exist and dignity. And number two, absent force majeure, your vision's going to win. It's inevitable. One of the weird and interesting things mm. about this dynamic is the future is not contested here. So this is going to become a majority-minority country. This is going to be a country no longer run by white men. It's in certain fields, you see it faster than others, but it's, right. this train is moving. Yeah, yeah. And so part of the difficult thing here is to ask those in woke America who are still on the wrong end of many power equations right now but who are moving into a country that is more favorable to them to start preparing for how they're going to be as victors, right? And it's a tough thing to ask people to be gracious and magnanimous in victory before they have won. But I think this is a kind of peculiar problem where the process of their victory, which is going to take place over decades in millions of little moments at workplaces and water fountains and schools and on streets is going to provoke so much fear and anxiety and racism and chauvinism and sexism that if the partisans of the new America are not attentive to being magnanimous in victory even before they have won, as a practical matter, the victory may be of Firaquin. And it's important to make sure we don't lose the country right at the moment that it's passing into new hands. And that's a really optimistic and hopeful vision because I think members of Work America often have a sense of we're under attack and we might lose what we have. Uh, and I think you're right, they have a lot of reasons to be confident and that actually we, and by the way, I'm a form of minority as well, which I'm reminded of when the Daily Stormer writes up what I say with um, three brackets around my name, we will, I think, achieve the kind of society we want, but we've got to make sure that in victory we create the country we really want rather than a country in which 
we may actually take over power in certain ways, but we do it on terms and under conditions that make the country a lot less livable than we want it to be. I'll leave you with this image. I was once at a Muslim wedding in a Christian church on Staten Island in New York, and everybody was dancing to salsa music. Muslim wedding, Christian church. That's, that's the America I love. That, you've just summarized the America I love. Me too. And I was standing there thinking, this is an unbelievable country. It's an unbelievable yeah. country. You know, and it's easy to be down on it, but this moment here yeah, yeah. actually is not possible in many places that may have more generous safety nets than us and may be more alive to issues of human dignity in other ways and may have you know, constitutions that put dignity very prominently. But frankly, that Muslim wedding in a Christian church in Staten Island where everybody's dancing the salsa was just a reminder to me. And the reason I bring that up is I think what the partisans of the new America need to do a better job of doing is convincing everybody that we throw a better party. <laughs> yeah. This that's is right. not all right. tedium and protest and anger. Let all of that happen because I think that's important often. And, and, and not, but we and not, throw and not a better be, party and you're going to have fun and, and, and not to be, And not to be addicted to the injustice, which is to say that, you know, one objection to your image of that wedding is that for a lot of minorities in this country, life doesn't look like that wedding. And that's right. And we've got to acknowledge that and we've got to fight against that and we've got to overcome that. But we've also got to say what lies at the end of that struggle. And what lies at the end of that struggle for me is summarized by the wedding you describe. So I want to make sure that we complete our project of couples therapy <laughs> because we've done one half of it. Perhaps I'm not conceptualizing it quite the right way. Perhaps there's two couples here or something. I don't know what's going on. But, you know, we've talked about how members of Woke America are trying to say something that's not always audible to members on the other side and how they might change what they say. I guess it is just one couple. Now let's, let, now let's talk about the other person which is, say, the member of Great America. What do members of Woke America need to hear in what members of Great America are actually trying to say? And how can members of Great America change how they talk about that in a way that makes it easier for people in Woke America to, to hear them? You know, I think there's such a bundle of things going on in the anger of Great America. And I think some things like, you know, I don't want there to be dark people here don't need to be said better or more empathetically, you're never going to succeed with that. Well, it would be nice if the people who said that had more empathy, but I don't think there's a right. way of saying what they're saying more right. empathetically. But I think in that stew are other things that do have the potential to be bridges if they were said differently. So, you know, you take Arizona, which I think I read a long time ago, a few years ago, if you take the state where the racial makeup essentially the whiteness of the people dying and the whiteness of the people being born is at its most kind of gaping, right? Oh, and interesting. I, um, and lo and behold, Arizona has some of the angriest racial politics right, right. in the country. So I think if people in great America could actually try to understand themselves a little more deeply and say, you know, I feel rattled by changing reality, okay? So saying that you don't want there to be more brown people in your state is not an acceptable, useful, constructive thing. And that may be how you feel. But saying that a shift in your state that is as precipitous as has happened in Arizona, that shifts what it means to be in your community, that perhaps makes your church feel like less of a refuge than it felt before, that perhaps puts you in situations at a restaurant or at your office where you don't kind of feel centered anymore, saying that that bothers you is okay. You may not be entitled to remedies for that feeling, but I think we actually do need to create a space for people to talk about being rattled by the new world. And I think people in great America need to do a better job of being able to separate the legitimate feelings of change being hard from their desire to stop it. They need to tell us what's going on with them. They need to tell us about the fear behind their anger, and we need to listen for it. I think they can also talk about you know, the very real ways in which cultures that are more homogeneous have certain advantages. I'm not a particular fan of them, um, but 
there's a lot of social science, as you know better than me, that shows that there are dividends like anonymous trust and things like that that do flourish more when people live in monocultures. So the only reason to have a kind of taste for a monoculture is not that you hate all people. Now, a lot of people like monocultures do hate people. But I think, again, if you can say, okay, part of me is uncomfortable with X people or Y people, but there's also a part of me that maybe I can share that longs for the days when you went to the grocery store and people read the same books as you and watched the same TV shows as you and went to the same church as you and believed in the same God as you and knew the same kind of Sunday song hymns as Mm. you. And that that part of your motivation isn't repugnant. We may not be able to do much for you, right? but bring it to the table, put it in the square, and let's see what we can do for you. And in terms of sort of hearing what people have to say, there's a way of framing that, which I'm sure some of the listeners of this podcast will be tempted to be framing it like that as they're listening to you, as white supremacy. As, oh, you think that white culture is better and there's a terrible loss happening because white culture is being diluted, right? But there's a way of framing it as well as a form of nostalgia for how you grew up and what you had and what you were used to, in which perhaps, and I'm sure there's a big range there, some members of Great America really do think, well, what I had as a kid was better and I'm going to resist changing that, you know, with everything I've got. And we have to deal with that politically in the ways one has to, you know, deal with intolerant people. But there may also be some people who generally say, you know, I don't know, perhaps I can recognize that there's something valuable to the culture that's being created now as well. And perhaps I can see why it's even in some ways better or more just. Perhaps they don't want to go quite that far. But they still feel very deeply yes. the loss of what they had. And and part of what I'm trying to think about here with you is that I think if people were able to show up and honestly say, look, I understand this country is changing, but I I just don't feel the sense of like comfort that I used to feel in my town, then maybe people on the other side can say, yeah, I get that. Look, your town is going to change, right? But maybe if you actually understood some of these people coming from Mexico to live in your town, maybe you would actually understand that compared to some of the native-born people in your town, they actually mm-hmm. have and practice some of the values around church and family that you're actually nostalgic for. Right. And right, that maybe right. if you deepen your analysis and maybe join this club or participate in this, you might actually f- understand their arrival to be a doubling down on the values you claim to believe in. Let me give you an example. I have a friend of mine who's a professor, he's biracial, and he was reading my second book, The True American, which is about a white supremacist who shoots this Muslim immigrant, and the Muslim immigrant eventually pardons him and fights to save his life from the death penalty. And my friend was reading the white supremacist character as a biracial man who grew up in a very diverse American city. And he said, you know, I just couldn't relate to this white supremacist. I mean, where's this anger? These people are unrelatable to me. And then he had an epiphany. This friend of mine grew up in New York City in a neighborhood that has since profoundly gentrified. used to be very bohemian and cool. Uh, and, And now it's full of hedge fund managers and ice cream shops. And he had this moment reading the book where he understood the white supremacist grievances about a changing America as he was experiencing it in Dallas as having resonances with the feeling my friend has every time he goes home to his neighborhood in New York City and feels like hedge fund managers and ice cream stores have taken over his neighborhood. Now, that does not mean, again, in our facile political discourse, that he is saying gentrification and immigration are the same. It does not mean that he is aligned on those issues. What it means is he was able to find a rhyme, a kind of poetic rhyme, between something that, frankly, he's never going to be on board with, white supremacy, and something that he feels deep in his gut, which is the feeling of displacement in a gentrifying neighborhood. And I think what I'm most deeply calling for is for all of us to put ourselves in a position of listening and speaking where we are detecting and sharing those poetic rhymes as much as possible. 
So how can members of Great America who, you know, let's go back to your example in Arizona, you know, somebody who does acutely feel the loss of the homogeneous culture they grew up in, but who actually, you know, recognizes the value of some of the change and who's motivated to be understood by the neighbors, as many members of Great America said he might not be, right? But somebody who is, somebody who actually does want to express their fears and their hopes in a way that might be understood across this great cultural divide we have in our country. What would you say to them about how they can express themselves? Those in great America? Yeah. I think they just need to, above all, separate. Well, in true couples therapy form, I think they need to dig a little bit deeper. And there's often this kind of joke about, you know, when you do this, I feel that, right? As opposed to saying, you're greedy or you're selfish. You don't do that. You say, when you cook yourself dinner and don't ask me if I want dinner, I feel neglected or ignored. So I think, again, it sounds kind of farcical, but, you know, a psychologist I talked to said, you know, there's a real possibility of kind of civic divorce in this country. So I, I think yeah. the analogy is actually pretty real. And so I would say to someone in woke America, instead of saying, you know, get the immigrants out of this damn country, fine. Now you got your little burp out. Now let's, <laughs> what is it? When, when you see X, you feel what? And I think you could get people to say, when I go to, you know, the Walgreens in my town and all the cashiers are from another country and I struggle to understand them, I feel like I don't recognize my surroundings anymore. Again, I am personally speaking as me. I'm not ready to change our immigration policy to accommodate the feeling that they just described. Right, right. I think that's reality. Did I benefit from hearing it that way? Yeah. And are there some things we might be able to do to deal with what they just said? Yeah. I'm not going to turn people back from Mexico because of what they just said. I'm not interested. And that's not going to happen. But could we think about social isolation in their town? Could we think about education? Could we think about using cultural programs, the opera, the classical music, the free movies on the lawn in the summer to maybe have people meet, introduce themselves, maybe have some Mexican movies and some old 1950s movies. I mean, like, there's so much you can do. But when people are just saying, get out of my country, or, you know, all you people are racists, it's hard to think about how you socially engineer a soft landing for people who are coming down from unearned privilege. And I think one of the hardest questions that I think about all the time um, and you, you know, would be very alive to as a political philosopher, is this question of what do you do with the loss of what is undeserved? Yeah. Because I think the loss of what is undeserved is actually one of the toughest moral problems for a society. Because I, the, I think about that a lot, right? And, and in the European context, for example, you know, absolutely there was a very strongly, you know, mono-ethnic, monocultural understanding of who belonged to the nation, and it gave people both material advantages and status advantages that were deeply undeserved. But I also get why it was important to people, right? If you're not the smartest guy, if you're not the richest guy, if you're not the most successful guy, and you don't get a tremendous amount of love and respect in your society, the temptation to say, well, at least I'm German or at least I'm Italian rather than Turkish, right? Or the temptation to say, once more immigrants are in your country, well, at least I'm a member of a majority group and we own this country and not that Turkish guest worker over there. I get that temptation. I get why something is taking away from you when the society changes. Now, the thing that's taking away from you, as you're saying, is unjust. It's unearned. And I'm not going to stop taking it away from you. But how do we manage that? Precisely. You know, if you're listening to this as someone who studies these kinds of things, who's a writer, who's a journalist, I would say one of the problems that I would love to deploy dozens and hundreds of people to think about, write about, research, to figure out is what do we do about what's going to be a decades-long process of the loss of what is undeserved. And the reason it's such a fascinating, vexing issue is you can make both sides of the case very passionately and they both sound right. At one level, who cares about the loss of what is undeserved? If you didn't deserve it, give it back. Who cares? Right? If you steal my car, 
am I anxious about the fact that it's difficult for you not to have a car anymore once the police find you and take it away? No. On the other hand, we all know, and you know, the research of Danny Kahneman and others, that losing something is just hard. Hmm. It's hard. And actually, the status of the thing that was lost, whether you earned it, whether you, it was a lottery, whether it was something that was just given to you five minutes before, it's always hard to lose things. And so I think we're in this holding pattern where essentially the left emphasizes the undeserved part of the story. It was undeserved, therefore these people don't deserve help, consideration, fussing over. They've been fussed over for the last 500 years. Sort of true. And the right emphasizes the loss. And there's truth in that emphasis. And what I would just beg people to do, because as I said in the piece on the armistice, I don't have another country, contrary to appearances. This is it. Hmm. And we got to make this work. And I think this question of figuring out what we do with, frankly, tens of millions of people who, in these years gone by and in the years to come, will have to lose what was undeserved. They will need to be coached into a new day. They will need to be persuaded that kicking and screaming for 30 years on the way to that new America is not good for anybody. They will have to be convinced that the Muslim wedding in the Christian church where everybody is dancing to salsa is a better party, even if it's one that at first makes them hmm. uncomfortable. And if we don't do that work, given who our president is, given many of the indicators that you have so expertly written about, about the health of our democracy, there is a very real chance that this extraordinary experiment in self-governance doesn't make it. It sounds crazy to talk about that, but there's a real, I don't know if it's 2% or 5% or 10% or 20%, but it's a lot higher than is comfortable for me because I don't have another country. This was the first of many episodes of America's Couples Therapy with Anand Giridharadas and Yasha Munk. This is great. Thank you so much. Uh, Thank you for having for me and for having Anand. these kinds of conversations. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about this show. If you too have been enjoying this podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes, tell your friend all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter, go to your nearest library and write The Good Fight forever on the inside pages of all the most popular books. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.